In other words, whenever you're looking at a website or any interface and you have that wow factor experience, you're like, wow, this thing's really cool. Like, I love everything about this. Should you take that exact carbon copy of that experience and just paste it onto your website? Is that gonna have the same wow factor and is it gonna be effective? I think whenever you find yourself in that situation where you wanna do that, you have to stop and ask, why am I doing this? Hi there, welcome to the UX and Growth Podcast. I'm Jeff, I'm a UX engineer at HubSpot. And I'm Matt, and I'm a growth hacker at HubSpot. And I'm Austin, I'm a UX designer at HubSpot as well. So today we're going to be talking about design trends, and more specifically, when you should and when you shouldn't use them, how you should think about them, how they're going to play into your product or your website or whatever, because um, as the internet has grown, as technology has morphed, um, we've had a lot of new trends uh, come make their way into design. And we've especially seen some really big trends here in the last six to 12 months, the, you know, like the 2014, 2015 uh, era, that um, a lot of people are talking about on like a global scale. And we kind of want to speak to the implications of those trends. So I think uh, what I want to start off with is just talking about like some of the different trends that are out there right now yeah. um, so that we can kind of set the ground for like what is it that we're working with. Um, I'm going to start with what I like to call aesthetic trends. So um, these are trends that like we're, we're just able to observe by using the internet or by using different devices. And if you were to Google like top design trends of 2015, right. um, these are the ones that would probably populate on that list. Twitter bootstrap. Twitter bootstrap, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I'm gonna, I'm gonna start with current trends, like the trends that we're seeing right now. And then to provide a little bit more context around what constitutes a trend, mm -hmm. I'm going to talk about past trends, trends that have uh, made their way out of design. And I think that that's a really, that makes it really easy to kind of visualize like what constitutes a trend. So some current trends that we're seeing right now, um, probably every, like every, I know every single person in this room has, has interacted with all of these. Um, it, a, a few that I'm seeing are uh, parallax scrolling. So where the, if you're like scrolling through a site um, the an image will scroll at a different rate than the rest of the site. Right. Uh, large image and video backgrounds, so where you're taking a, like a content area and you're playing just automatically rolling a video in the background with text and maybe a CTA on top of it. CSS animations, so as you're scrolling down the page, like different content is just animating its way in, grabbing your attention. Um, in certain cases, completely slowing down the site because oh, somebody dude. got a little too Especially excited. on mobile. Yeah, yeah. Everyone yeah. loves that. <laughs> but it looks so good. <laughs> Watch this. <laughs> um, flat design and material design. 
Uh, I'll come back to those. Ghost buttons. So where we have a CTA, a call to action, or a button. Why do you think it has the name ghost button, by the way? The reason... Who are you going to call? (laughs) (laughs) Ghost button. So the reason behind that is because it's basically uh, like the large majority of the button is invisible. Mm, that makes yeah. sense. You're talking about it's that like the button is like just an outline shaped like a button. Yeah, yeah. So is. like you have text and yeah. then um, maybe like 10 or 15 pixels of right. padding and then a three, one to three pixel border. Yeah, yeah. And then you hover it. And, like say, and just like a ghost, if you hover over the ghost, <laughs> the ghost appears. <laughs> Which is exactly, why it got the name yeah, ghost button. It's so appropriately named. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so ghost buttons. Uh, the hamburger menu, that's a controversial one. Because it's like, is that even a trend anymore once it becomes hum- like human nature? And the less known hot dog menu, which is making a play. <laughs> is that real? It's just you take away one of the horizontal lines. Oh. <laughs> that's, that's literally all it is. It's, it's like those designers trying to like break or buck the trend. We're going to yeah. call it a hot dog. You know? <laughs> I, I forget. Um, I think it was uh, like Wendy's or something like that. They yeah. they actually turned their hamburger menu into an actual hamburger. Oh. <laughs> I forget who it was nice. that did it, but yeah, that's clever. Real real, real original girls. Yeah. Um, <laughs> sticky headers. So, like headers, or or in more layman's term, like navigation that scrolls with the user. So that's where you'll see like the logo and then all of the nav items scrolling as the user scrolls so that they don't have to scroll back up to the top of the page to uh, navigate around the site. Yeah, more often than not, that's mostly like, it's overtaken by the call to action. Like, Mm -hmm. yeah, it's for the navigation, but most of the time you're thinking like, what if the user forgets where to sign up? Yeah. Because of course, that's a problem for, that people have. Uh, yeah. Of course, for a lot of sites that, that are using like sticky uh, headers, though, they don't even have a CTA in it. So um, that that's, that's probably been. okay. That's yeah. actually... I, it, so uh, just to cut right to the point, users will figure out how to sign up if they want to sign up. Like, that's it. <laughs> and that's like, if they don't have the CTA, like, that's because that company figured that out. Like, your, your user knows how to scroll. They, yeah, like there's no such thing proven. as above the fold. They yeah. know how to scroll and they plan on it. And if they want to sign up, they're gonna figure it out because yeah. people aren't stupid. They, they're not familiar, but they're not stupid. Mm-hmm. So okay, so sticky headers. Um, another one, card-based design. So this is a really scalable, flexible form of design that was probably in the mainstream um, was popularized by Pinterest <clears throat> first, uh, where you know you're just seeing like multiple different cards stacking next to each other or above each other Mm -hmm. if it's on mobile. So those are some current trends. Now let's think about some trends of the past. HTML. (laughs) (laughs) So so again, aesthetic trends of the past. I got a little too excited. Back on topic. React forever. (laughs) Um, So earlier I, I talked about flat design and material design as current trends. Mm-hmm. A trend of the past that would match up with those is skeuomorphic design. So for anybody that's not familiar with what skeuomorphic design is or flat design or material design, um, skeuomorphic is basically a realism form of design where you're uh, creating a 2D image that uh, is intended to appear as a 3D object. So um, lots of gradients, drop shadows, uh, bevels. Wood textures. Wood textures, yeah. <laughs> the classic. <laughs> um, so it's basically creating a form of realism in design. 
Uh, flat design is basically a, pol a polar opposite of skeuomorphic design in that it's very, uh, it's, it's color-based. It's flat, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that's it. <laughs> um, it's color-based. It's simple shapes, um, and and there there's uh, it, it lacks depth. But it does depend on a color hierarchy in terms of the shading of each color. Yes. So what flat design forces the designer to do is apply uh, classic hierarchical principles, mm -hmm. um, strong typography, strong color theory, whatever. Mm -hmm. um, and then material design is a hybrid of the two, where um, you're basically taking the depth from skeuomorphic design and merging it with the scalability of flat design because flat design was actually originally arrived at out of necessity um, with the proliferation of responsive design. So uh, skeuomorphic design doesn't scale well across devices because it, it utilizes textures and uh, shadowing and gradients as, as we mentioned. And so um, you think about like if you take your browser window and you just reduce it slowly, like horizontally in size, uh, what would that do to a wood texture? Like it would completely screw it up. Mm -hmm. uh, and then what would that do to just a solid color? Essentially mm -hmm. nothing to the eye. Uh, so, so that's how flat design was arrived at. And then we had this issue where it's like, okay, we have a scalable design form of design, but like there's no depth to it and it's, it's um, Matt, something that you were m mentioning before we even started the podcast was that it was hard for colorblind people sometimes to uh, distinguish between different elements. So there were accessibility issues uh, if flat design was poorly executed. So then uh, in comes material design. And this is something that was pioneered by Google um, a year or a year and a half ago. And now um, it's actually become their primary design language. You can go to google.com slash design and they like talk about material design. It's crazy. Uh, there's an entire style guide, uh, a Google style guide for material design. It's really, it's actually, even if you're not into material design, it's interesting to see like what Google's style guide is, what their design language is. Yeah, side note, um, read the part about stock imagery that they add. Yes, that's it's, the most. It's great, I'm not gonna spoil it, but. Yeah. That's actually, that's actually the in my opinion, that's the most interesting part of, of the style guide. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, so material design is a, a hybrid of skeuomorphic and flat design that was arrived at through necessity for utility. Um, and so that's become a trend now because Google is doing it and like, shit, if Google's doing it, I'm going to do it. <laughs> Um, okay, so back to some, some other trends of the past. Glossy buttons, where it's like super shiny calls to action. Uh, bevel and emboss, so where you're again adding some depth to an element. Dramatic drop shadows. So <laughs> if, you, if you can't use color and hierarchy to distinguish an element from another <laughs> element, throw a drop shadow on it. And that'll fix it, everything. And make it dramatic. Yeah. <laughs> make sure it's dramatic. <laughs> Gradients. So um, adding different color ranges. Mm -hmm. And my favorite, tiled image backgrounds. <laughs> so um, putting... Oh. oh, this reminds me. Have you ever seen a tiled image background of a rainbow gradient before? Because that's like <laughs> probably that's... the most terrible. Like your eyeballs are just, they start melting out of your head. And... I bet the conversion rate is not that bad on paper. <laughs> <laughs> it's, 
It is very engaging. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, get this away, I'll convert, I don't care. Uh -huh. yeah. Also, the classic changing the mouse to like some other thing, yeah. whatever yeah. animation like the person came up yeah. with. Oh, when I click the race car revs. <laughs> I miss the past. Yeah, yeah, man, why can't we go back to those days? Classics. Yeah. We can bring it back. There's no reason why we yeah. can't. You know no, what? I'm going to go home and I'm going to change a whole podcast of reasons why we can't bring those back. <laughs> I'm going to download the Ask Toolbar. That's what oh. I'm going to do when I go home. Can you? Is that still? That's still a thing. It's yeah. still a thing today. It's malware. Watch out. Sounds like a good night to me. I mean, yeah. <laughs> malware when it was invented. So, so all right. So we just talked about some current trends and some past trends, right? So now we can kind of see like what denotes a trend and Primarily, it's that um, in, in the case of aesthetic trends, they were chosen um, because they were being done by another company, by, a, by a, a trendsetter, if you will, because they looked good or whatever. And uh, like an observable downfall of these is that uh, they eventually go out of style, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so building off of that, I think that it's like beyond aesthetic trends, we have another form of trends that I like to call organic trends. So these are um, data-driven, non-aesthetic trends. And they kind of happen as a byproduct of necessity or utility. Um, so like we think of the aesthetic trends that I mentioned and the companies that were setting those trends. Take the material design example. Google arrived at that trend, actually, out of necessity. So they were doing a bunch of user testing, or um, they were doing a, a bunch of, they were gathering a bunch of quantitative data on their user base, and they determined that flat design just wasn't doing it. And so they, out of necessity, moved to material design. They had a specific reason for it. And I think we can trust Google because they have the user base to run those massive quantitative experiments. Right. Like they've done experiments, famous experiments, where they optimized for the optimal a hex value for the perfect color of blue that people are going to click on. Mm -hmm, that's you know, correct. They're yeah. very, very in-depth with this stuff. Yeah. Yep. So um, so they arrived at that. And then, uh, and at that point, I would say that that was what I would classify as an organic trend. Um, and then it became an aesthetic trend when people just started mindlessly copying it because that's what Google was doing. So I think that's the distinction between what I'm about to talk about here is organic versus aesthetic trends. If you're, if you're um, using a trend purely because it looks good or because it's something that somebody else is doing, uh, that's when you would classify it as an, or, or an, as, as an aesthetic trend. You're doing it purely for aesthetics. Um, and then if you're using a trend or observing a trend that resulted from necessity, so where material design originated, or um, another trend that I'm going to talk about called slippy UX, uh, that's that's more of an organic trend, uh, where where it happened because it's meant to serve some form of utility. So actually, if we take any of the the aesthetic trends that I mentioned, they all originated as organic trends, and then they became aesthetic trends over time when people began copying them without uh, without understanding the utility that they originally served. So mm -hmm. like the large image and video backgrounds. Um, we actually ran experiments here at HubSpot where we found out like, I mean, this was before, you know, we're like the hipsters of large image and video backgrounds. Like we were doing it before it was cool. You yeah. know, we're basically like, we, we ran experiments to see 
Like, okay, if we throw up a really big and engaging image instead of just like text and accompanied by an image next, a smaller image next to it, which one is going to convert better? And we found like if you use big, compelling imagery, it actually draws the user in and engages them more, and it does convert better. And so we started doing that out of necessity. But you have to know your user persona in order to be effective with that. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So What's going to work for them? Yes, that's correct. So we arrived at that because it was something that was working for our users. And then it eventually, I'm not saying that we set the trend, but you know, like over time, <laughs> I mean, maybe we did. <laughs> uh, over time, it became a trend and it was like, oh, I'm going you know, to throw up like a big, pretty picture and uh, cool. That, that looks like what, what, uh, that looks like what Spotify is doing. That looks like what Airbnb is doing. That looks like what Medium is doing. Actually, of those three companies that I mentioned, if you take any of the trends that I just previously spoke about, they're doing all of them. But these companies actually didn't arrive at those designs purely for aesthetics. Rather, there is utility behind that. And then I think that this is where like we have the, the breakdown between you know when something goes from an organic trend to an aesthetic trend is like you have designers that look up to these companies. It's like, you know, I mean Spotify is championing design right now, right? And so it's like, okay, I don't necessarily know what I want to do for my design, but I like what Spotify is doing and I think it looks super professional and I want to look professional too. So I'm going to copy <laughs> what they're doing and create something that looks really good for my site. But how does that explain all the designers out there that reskin Spotify <laughs> and that's their <laughs> portfolio? <laughs> yeah, no, that's a completely separate conversation that we could have. So uh, unsolicited redesigns, live landing page critiques, um, they're essentially meaningless mm -hmm. because there's no data behind them. Right. There's no insight, there's no reasoning. Um, Reddit is a perfect example of a site that is criticized all the time for its completely ugly design, yet it functions so well, right? And it's because it serves a certain utility. And they arrived at that design through the utility that it serves. And the same thing occurred at Spotify, Airbnb, and Medium. And those were organic trends at that time. And then aesthetic trends were branched off of that where designers were saying like, oh, I'm just gonna copy what Spotify is doing because they're influential. Now, I'm not necessarily saying that we shouldn't take inspiration from these brands, right? But what we should do instead is um, instead of instead of blindly copying, we should we should take the inspiration and then see what's going to specifically work for our audience. And that would be something that is more along the lines of an organic trend, where it's saying, okay, flat design is happening because responsive design is happening, and it, and flat design works better for responsive design. So I have a question mm -hmm. that one of you might have the answer to, and that is, can you separate, like let's take, let's take a, a page like, I'm looking at Spotify's help page right now. Could you identify pieces of a design that you can apply right now to your site without really any consequences versus parts that are completely dependent on your specific, you know, uh, data or, you know, your own user experience design. So uh, I guess a good example would be like, um, I don't know, the relationship of your, your margins and your padding, you know, like, can you, can you fix that and it's not going to be an issue? Or like, can you, can you do something with the colors or like the placement of certain modules? Like, can you just do that right now? And it's like, 
you're not like harming yourself by accident. Because like a big a big point here is don't be mindless about applying the trends. Can you be mindless about applying certain parts of the trend? What do you think? So uh, uh, the question is, can you copy? Right, es- essentially. Right. Yeah. But in, in, it's and exactly like how much? yes. It's exactly what you just said. You have to be thoughtful about it, and you can always make assumptions about. Uh, your website, your audience, your users, etc. You need to, uh, if you have an assumption, you can go forward with it. Just collect the data to validate that it works. But if I'm looking at Spotify's website right now, there are things that I can certainly copy. Um, would I copy the background image of some girl dancing? That's probably not going to work on my portfolio. Yeah, but, but like the background <laughs> image, like a background image. It, it depends what is the brand I'm trying to build and what purpose does that serve? Right? Does it call out my CTA in a very specific way? Does it evoke a certain emotion? Um, and does, is that, is that uh, progressive toward whatever goal I'm trying to meet? And there are other trends that I'm seeing on here that I very well could copy, such as like having the icon of the user next to the login button or having a hamburger menu because things like that are very universal at this point and people recognize them, so it will work for you. Yeah, I think it's it's just the the key point is that it's important to verify. Yes. And I think it's also important to point out that sometimes aesthetics actually are a legitimate justification for um, copying a certain design pattern. So, like, um, Matt, something that you brought up previously before we were recording was uh, branding value, right? So Absolutely. You were saying, like, what if, you know, what if a company wants to apply a certain trend to boost their brand or to make their brand be perceived in a certain way, that would actually be a legitimate justification. The point is that there has to be reasoning or thought to back up why you are um, participating in something in a design pattern that also just happens to be a trend. I think a great example of that is the Evernote homepage which if you've ever seen it, is the trend of having some banner image with those uh, cookie cutter cutout people layered on top with some testimonial, mm-hmm. right? And the entire reason why Evernote does that is because they're trying to match their user persona with their value prop in some unique way. I mean, I don't work at Evernote, so I can't say that for sure. I don't have their data points, but I would assume that they show the guy from Mythbusters for a specific reason because it connects with their audience and is going to add validity or help convert users. I just pulled up uh, that website, the the Evernote homepage. (laughs) I'm not sure if this is actually photography or if they, like, it looks like... (laughs) It really does look like they just cut him out and like yes. pasted him like and like South Park. Style. Now this guy's in Paris. <laughs> now this guy's on a roller coaster. Like it's <laughs> it, it, it just doesn't look real at all. Um, but you know what? What it does do is it does draw the eye in. So like um, yes. you got a face. Um, it's the only thing in focus. Um, and it's like it looks really cut out. But like I'm gonna I'm gonna look there. You know, it's not like he just blends into the background. So um, I think that 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 was probably a conscious choice to do something like that. Um, it, Cause like there's a lot of colors um, and it keeps your eye away from everything else on yes. the screen, except for exactly what they want you to see. Yeah. But again, the point being, can I do that on my website? Maybe, what business goal does that solve, right? What is the reason for me using this trend or blindly copying Evernote's website? Yeah, yeah. And I think that, I mean, that's actually something that we've harped on, we harped on in the LinkedIn uh, yes. episode is like we don't have access to data to Evernote's data so we don't really know like 
I don't know, man. I mean, for all we know, Evernote might be scrambling to change that image right now sure. because it's not performing for them. So that's the whole thing is like, make sure that there is a reasoning behind why it is that you're um, participating in a design trend. Or at least try to answer the question, why did Evernote do this? Mm -hmm. Yeah. That'll certainly help you in your understanding of why you're trying to do it as well. Mm -hmm. So we were talking about uh, aesthetic trends and we kind of laid those out pretty well. Now let's talk about organic trends because I think that that's something that we can build upon a little bit more. I want to give an example that I touched on very briefly that's uh, a, a good organic trend. And it's right now it's being labeled as Slippy UX. I think it's kind of a crappy name for it. Um, it's basically the whole thing is like slippy versus sticky UX. I think the easiest way to put it is like um, friction, uh, friction UX versus frictionless UX. So this has been um, a common pattern like in, pre in the past couple of years to re you know reduce friction in UX. And I think that slippy UX would be um, probably uh, in a similar vein. So now, a lot of this is. Uh like in the context of like wearables, right? Like you kind of need that for something that's like really small. Yeah, yeah. So so wearables is um, is is a good uh, example of a uh, like a use case for uh, frictionless UX. I think that the best way to really define what slippy UX is is to actually define its opposite and that would be sticky UX. So like um, classic UX we think of we want stuff experiences that are going to engage the user and keep them interested and keep bringing them back you know like delight them and, and bring them back to my site bring them back to my product or whatever. Slippy UX does the opposite it's um, it, it, it focuses on less engagement and time required to complete a task for faster results and uh, keeping people out of like the experience exists outside of the device, if you will. So yeah, some, some examples of Slippy UX, a really good one would be um, like a digital or a digital automobile screen design. So like if we think of the Tesla, it basically has a gigantic iPad in, in the dash. And um, like what is, you know, what, what type of design, uh, you know, requirements do you need to accommodate for something like that? You don't want something that's going to be super engaging and time consuming. In fact, like you could be dealing with life and death situations. So you want something that's going, you know, to have um, glanceability, minimal copy, uh, something that can be utilized in potentially high stress situations. That's always made me wonder that concept of uh, using slippy UX tactics on a device for when you're driving. Like, have you guys seen the Waze app? Mm -hmm. By chance, do you, do you use mm -hmm. it? Yeah. How how what do they do for that? Like it, the entire concept of it is like you're driving, you pass a you're cop, collecting points. Like, yeah. Yes, like yeah. mark that there's a cop there, or mark that there's an accident that's a, there. That's a really weird one for me, and I, I it's mean, super awkward. It's like yeah. this weird middle ground, you know? Yeah, yeah. That's so that's not slippy UX. <laughs> yeah, but it should be right. It should, but be, it, it yeah. can't be slippy UX because then it wouldn't be it successful. It would delete the gamification and also yes. the community the sort of crowdsourcing. That's a great interaction of business goals versus the user experience, yeah. you know? Mm -hmm. You know who is doing, well, uh, Slippy UX is like exclusively, I'm not looking at the screen as much as possible, right? Like, was that, would you assume that? Cause like, I'm thinking of Google Maps where you're using it the whole time, 
<laughs> but you're not looking at it, you know, you're not yeah, touching it. Yeah, I mean, it kind of goes in line with this idea of the invisible interface, which is like this thing that we've been talking about for a while, but nobody's actually been able to do. Google Glass attempted at it. I think that eventually the invisible interface will become a thing, but Slippy UX is basically like, let's put people back in the human experience. Let's bring back the human element, the personal experience of something. So, um, the, like the UX of a home system, we talked about the, the Nest, it was like this thing, it's, it's basically a smart thermostat that ran a Kickstarter campaign and a bunch of people like bought it uh, without ever seeing it. And then you can like actually Google, um, like I'm breaking up with my Nest. And it's just a bunch of people that bought these things and used them for a month and then like had a terrible experience with them and got rid of them because the Nest was requiring more attention from them than their actual thermostat did. What it was doing, like then an analog thermostat would require. What it was doing is um, it would basically like try to learn your temperature preferences over time. And after a month or so, it kind of uh, just started forcing temperatures on you. So like people were completely freezing in the winter and then they were getting cooked in the summer. And they started ripping the things off the wall because it was requiring more work than it was actually worth. In other words, how much responsibility do we want to delegate to our smart devices? <laughs> yeah. Do we want a smart thermostat? Yeah. Do we yeah. want to leave our fate in that thing's hands? Yeah. Well, I mean, like... <laughs> Ultimately, yeah, though. <laughs> yeah. It was good. If, if it worked, right? Yeah. Yeah, and it's also, it's also just kind of like... The, like it's... it's um, it's the way that the tech industry is progressing. It's like if we don't do it, somebody else will do it. Like mm -hmm. you've got an i, you know, a giant iPad in your car if you have an, if you own a Tesla. It's gonna be a giant um, iPad everywhere. Yep, you've got a giant iPad in your fridge if that's your thing. <laughs> Go ahead and watch. Uh, inside the fridge, is that what it, you're saying? It's no, it's like oh, it's okay. on the outside. <laughs> you like it's open like, the uh, door and you're like, huh? I got there's an, email. an iPad in my fridge. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's it's like on the door and you can watch TV on your fridge and stuff like that. Yeah. Apparently, that's a thing that people want. <laughs> yeah. Imagine like, hey. Uh, I don't have a TV. Can you bring a TV over to my house? And you're like, yeah. And you're like hauling a fridge across the street. <laughs> <laughs> but strangely, I wouldn't say no if you offered me one of those things. That's, <laughs> I would you know take what, it. man? It's like, I'd probably take one of those things yeah. just to be like, I got an iPad Dude, in my check fridge. this out. Like, yeah. do you have this in your apartment? <laughs> but yeah, so, um, and then, and then another massive proliferation of Slippy UX is wearable devices. So Jeff, you, you kind of touched on that earlier. Um, if you're going to be wearing, basically wearing your phone on your wrist, uh, the, whole, the whole benefit of it is that it, it takes you out of your device and it brings the experience, experience a little bit more into reality. So you want slippy UX there where it's not demanding more time or attention from you than your phone would because that's, that's a core element of the value proposition. So um, all of these, uh, these de devices and use cases for Slippy UX that I've mentioned are actually organic results of the, the proliferation of um, new forms of technology and um, mediums you know, for designs and stuff like that, where it's like, we have way, way more screens today than we've ever had before, and they're all different sizes and they all serve different purposes. And so, um, now we, we have devices that, uh, like, in, in, in terms of the way that they serve the user, are completely different than devices of the past. And so we actually want to create a user experience that requires less attention. So 
because of that, because of the devices that we have and the, the reasoning behind why people have those devices and what the user is trying to get out of those devices, um, we have the natural proliferation of a trend. I think it's also important to point out that it's very difficult to try and start a trend, right? So for example, like with, as devices evolve, as digital technology evolves, uh, especially with wearables, you see this trend where people try and bring in motion actions, right? Mm -hmm. Like I double tap or I knock on the table and something happens. But the problem with that is that it's something that you need to learn. It's not inherent to you that you know to knock to unlock your device or to do some other weird like wave to cause an action. Whereas like the difference is with the hamburger menu, somehow it became mainstream and just mm -hmm. everyone knows that I clicked the hamburger or hot dog and a navigation slides out of nowhere, right? Yeah, yeah, well there was a lot of debate around that for a while. Sure. Because like when, when the hamburger menu started to kind of become a thing, everyone was like, you know, look at the like 60% of your user base doesn't understand what this does. And then, oh, now it's 40% and now it's 30%. Mm -hmm. And they'll keep going down from there, right? Because it's actually becoming um, a staple of design. Mm -hmm. But I think that the, 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 the key takeaway from everything that we've just talked about here is like the difference between an organic trend and an aesthetic trend is that an organic trend happens naturally um, of necessity through quantitative or qualitative data that was collected through user goals, product goals, whatever. It's something where it's like, oh, we need a product that does X, Y, and Z. And it just happens to result in Slippy UX. But we didn't use Slippy UX because that was the cool thing at the time. Mm -hmm. You know, like nobody would create um, a website that is aimed at, at uh, you know, like a, a pay, a, 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 like a good example, um, a, like a, a freemium or, or pay to play game. You know, like the whole, ex the, the whole idea behind something like that is sticky UX. So nobody would say like, oh, we need to create a non-engaging video game and completely destroy our revenue model because Slippy UX is the cool trend. Mm -hmm. Rather, it's just uh, the Slippy versus Sticky UX, those things res are a result of necessity. And I think that that sort of gets to the root of like the proper way to arrive at employing a trend in your design. Yes, in other words, whenever you're looking at a website, or any interface, and you have that wow factor experience. You're like, wow, this thing's really cool. Like, I love everything about this. Should you take that exact carbon copy of that experience and just paste it onto your website? Is that gonna have the same wow factor and is it gonna be effective? I think whenever you find yourself in that situation where you wanna do that, you have to stop and ask, why am I doing this? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Did <laughs> Did you sign? Uh, did you fill out the form before you came out? Uh, came to the conclusion that you wanted to take their design, you know, because uh, that wow factor doesn't necessarily translate into performance either. Yes. Yes. So yeah, we we actually have run experiments here at HubSpot where we've dealt with something completely similar to that, where um, basically like we've said, okay, uh, like uh, an experiment that I can think of right now that we're actually running today, is we took an old landing page that basically hadn't been touched for a couple years. And it was ugly, I mean, the thing's ugly, you know? It's working. I know exactly which landing page you're talking about. <laughs> as soon as you said, it's ugly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
So, so um, it's, it's working, but it's ugly. And we recently released a new uh, style guide, a site-wide and company-wide style guide, visual design language. Um, so we said, you know what, like, let's, let's try just uh, a completely different uh, variation of this page, like aesthetically speaking, let's apply all of our style guide to it and create like, like just something radically different, you know, and see how it does. So we created um, a landing page that was a radical departure from the other one. And in a lot of ways, it was buying into a lot of the trends that we're seeing. Today. And that's a common thing that you run into when you do yeah. this kind of iterative design. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because it's like, I mean, what am I going to base it off of? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and so, um, so we, you know, like if you take the original design, it was, it was basically um, just a, a giant headline and then uh, two columns below the headline to the left column. It was a bunch of text and then an image describing the product. And in the right column, it was a conversion form. And the page was fixed. So it like in most viewports, the entire page would display without having to scroll. Then we've got a new page, variation B. And this is the one where we applied a lot of trends. And we have like a big image background to start off with and then a big headline like strong typography and a form on top of it and then under that like the, the image background would adapt to the height of the viewport so it was like that's like a super trendy thing to do right now it's like oh all you see is this big image first off and of course the form and, and the headline and then you scroll be below that and you've got like three sections describing the product and then another section below that again with a big image background and a conversion form we did a lot of qualitative testing on this before, like when it was in the wireframe stage and when it was in the high fidelity mockup stage, we were you know, building prototypes in InVision and sending it out uh, for remote user testing. And then we did um, moderated in-person user testing. And then we actually like sent it around to a couple of people within the company just to you know, see like, oh, what about people that are super familiar with the product? What do they think about it? Everybody loved this thing. It was like, oh my God, this thing is a home run. Like everyone's like, wow, this thing is so compelling. Like I, you know, I love this big text. I love these uh, strong product shots. Like the, the big image in the background was like, it had like wood in the back. And then we had like in focus, like in, in really close focus was a MacBook, you know, like a sexy MacBook with <laughs> our product on the screen. Right. Oh, so, did we mention that that was a, an old trend of the past? Was, is the, was the wood? Did the you wood. guys make that? Was that the big <laughs> oh, mistake yes. you made right there? <laughs> Just was, like, oh, this was gone mistake. in 2004. Yeah. <laughs> is using a MacBook in your banner image also a trend? That's a trend. <laughs> this page was full of trends and everybody loved it. Mm -hmm. And then it was like, okay, let's build this thing. So we built it and then we launched it live. And then it ran for two weeks in a split test. And we actually did Matt's placebo experiment where Excellent. we ran two separate split tests at the same time to make sure that we were getting back the best data possible and that it wasn't just a fluke that one variation was winning over the other. Mm -hmm. And guess what? The new version lost. So that sucked. <laughs> did you design the page yourself? Uh, it, yeah, so I... <laughs> it personally sucked because I made it. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, so we were, you know, we're running like um, multiple different experiments every week, you know, so like throwing, throwing a page together based off of assumptions is, is not like a completely terrible thing. This is kind of going back to what we were talking about earlier, where like we're actually testing the trend, but 
in this like in this specific case, it was actually a collaboration between you know multiple different designers. Uh, but it was it wasn't uh, based off of you know any form of data necessarily to begin with. It was just a radical departure to see what we would come up with. And now begins the fun process of trying to analyze and figure out what worked about page A and what didn't work about page B, which yeah. is very difficult because page B, when page B is so radically different than page A, there's a lot of components that you have to figure out and break down and experiment on to figure mm -hmm. out what that culprit is. Yeah, exactly. So, so that's kind of what it came to is like, um, I mean, Matt, you, you had said, like you've you've run this exact experiment yep. before actually at this company and you've had the exact same thing happen to you mm -hmm. this same it thing hurts. Is, yeah it, it hurts <laughs> it especially hurts the first time it happens this this same exact thing has happened to me multiple times mm -hmm. you know at hubspot it's happened before and at other companies it's happened before where you know you put your blood sweat and tears into a design and then you launch it or you and in like in the case of this particular design like maybe you and like a couple other people put your blood, sweat, and tears into a design. And this is why you collect data, because if you weren't collecting data, you would have just taken the qualitative feedback and just published it. Mm -hmm. And your conversions would have tanked. Yeah. But everyone would be like, it's a nice page. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so then it's like, okay, let's, let's take a step back and ask mm -hmm. ourselves, what about the first page, the A variation, is so great? And then you boil it down to the fundamentals. And this is where UX like really, really comes into this process is what are the fundamentals of that page that are actually working? And how do we like somehow apply that to our new design language? Did you learn those fundamentals by chance? Yeah, so so we, we learned um, like, uh, th I mean, this is something that I had learned in the past, but of course you, you want to verify it with this particular audience as well. But like by adding those additional sections to the page, you actually just gave mm. people more of a chance to rethink their decision and back out of it. So the no scroll portion of the first page was like pretty critical. Sometimes that curiosity factor really helps you out. Yeah, yeah. When you're very vague about a description and people are like, oh, I should find out. And then they adopt the products and then they decide, okay, I like this thing. Yep. So then, um, you know, got the fundamentals out of it and then iterate, iterate, iterate. And eventually you arrive at a design that still has those awesome core fundamentals that were powering that the A variation forward but you have the new aesthetic language applied to it as well, and you're getting the benefits from both of those, and it's converting at an exponentially better rate. And what happened? What just happened there is we took trends and we put data behind them to understand why it, why we, you know, we were using those trends and which ones were working and which ones weren't, and we effectively arrived at them through an iterative process of collecting quantitative data and pumping out different variations. And now we have a page that's performing way better than any of the other ones that we had before. So that just kind of goes back to our thing at the beginning. It's like, what is the role that, that a trend plays in your design, in your site? That is going to be completely up to your audience or the, the, the product that you're creating. And it's not necessarily to say that like a trend can't play a role or that you can't take inspiration from Spotify or Airbnb or Medium or whatever. But it is to say that if you're going to use one of those trends, that you should understand why you're using it and what impact it's having on your site, on your product, on your user. 
I just finished ordering a fridge with an iPad in it while <laughs> you guys are having a conversation about that. All right, well, that's all the time we have for today. Um, if you have any questions about this, I know that this is kind of um, uh, a complex topic in a way, especially if you're, you're considering using these. Uh, feel free to message us if you have any questions. Um, we're happy to answer you know, with our experience or you know, any of our recommendations. Uh, thank you so much, and have a great rest of your day. Thank you.